The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Last Sunday, we read the final miracle in John 4, where the royal official comes to Jesus for his son to be healed. Jesus graciously heals his son by his spoken word, and then the man comes to truly believe in Jesus. It's a wonderful ending in John 4. Here in John 5, again, Jesus performs an amazing miracle with a very different response. It reminds us that at the end of the book, John says, there's all these signs that Jesus did that we haven't recorded, but the ones that are recorded are so that you will believe and that by believing have life in his name. And yet, even though Jesus does these signs, people respond differently to them. That paradigm was predicted for us in John 3. We read that God so loved the world, he sent his son. But then, sadly, we read that though he did not come to judge the world, but so that the world be saved through him, men loved darkness. Rather than come into the light, they were afraid that their deeds would be exposed. So some respond to Jesus with resistance and rejection. But indeed, any one of us this morning could find a stubbornness in our own heart that pushes away Jesus when we feel like the fear of man is more important, or it's an infringement on our authority, or something about his presence is unsettling to us. So the title of today's sermon is, the authority of Jesus. I originally titled it Treating Jesus as God. I think they both work. But this morning, we're going to work through John 5, this first miracle. If you have your Bible, you want to be in John 5. If you want to turn in the Pew Bible, page 1057 through 58 will be where we are this morning. And we're going to see an instructive miracle, but then an alarming response. Okay, so I don't want you to lose track in the sermon. The first 18 verses are the instructive miracle that Jesus performs, but then we'll look at the alarming response. Indeed, in John's gospel, the first four chapters, people are maybe hesitant about Jesus, or maybe they're even misguided but enthused. But in John 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, scholars call this the festival cycle because the hostility now grows to Jesus. What was hesitancy becomes hostility. And what was misguided enthusiasm becomes, sadly, opposition for many, though thankfully not all. So John 5, we're going to see this miracle and its instructive nature, and then we'll see the response to it. John 5, verses 1 through 7 give us the setting. We won't reread it just for time's sake. We see that Jesus is back in Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, after this, a very unclear amount of time. Remember, Jesus has been in Jerusalem already. He's cleared the temple. They've not received him very well for that. So it's probably been maybe up to a year. Jesus comes back. He's there for, again, a festival. We don't know which one it is, but we see something that is striking. There's this pool there. And this pool in Bethesda, which is sort of northeast of the temple in the city, is one that had come to have a public perception that people thought there was maybe some mystical healing powers if this pool of normally stagnant water would stir for whatever reason, and they could maybe get in it and be healed. And that became the public perception of this pool. Today we have excavations of this site. There's an interesting YouTube video I watched this week to show us the location of the pool that they have 
discovered about in the last 100 years, actually. It was hidden underneath a, a church that had been built on top of it. To help you view it, picture two very, very large and deep water basins, a north one and a south one. And so a picture like a football field or more of rectangular colonnades, which are a porch where you can be covered from the sun until you get into the sunlit pool. Across the middle was the fifth colonnade. Perhaps this is where those who were disabled would sit in the hopes that they could get down into the water of the pool. This pool is one that was destroyed likely in 70 AD, and that's why it wasn't known about. That indicates, by the way, that John is writing as an eyewitness. So he lived with Jesus contemporarily and wrote about what he saw that Jesus did and Jesus performed. And the location is well chosen because Bethesda in English, Bethsaida in Hebrew means house of mercy. So here at this place of mercy, the Son of Man has come to perform a real miracle at a real time and in a real place. Now let me pause. The signs are real historical accounts that have ongoing significance. But perhaps at this moment you could already be thinking, well, it doesn't really matter if this is a historical account or not. I mean, what difference does it make if this is real? Why does it matter if we know the real location? And why does it matter if John is truly an an eyewitness? And let me just speak to that for a moment. If these stories are just meant to inspire us to live a good life, then it doesn't matter if they're real or not. Then they'd be like Aesop's fable or any Disney film, which is intending to help you tap into your unlocked inner potential and then steer your own future destiny. But actually, Christianity is unique. It's unlike all of man-made religion, and it's unlike secularism. In this key detail, Christianity does not record stories to help you become something better by your power. Christianity actually does the exact opposite. It records the real account of what God has done to rescue us from a condition with which we cannot save ourselves, our own sinfulness. So why does it matter that it is a historical account? Because these are called gospels because they're the good news of what God has done in Jesus to save us from a condition that we cannot rescue ourselves. You see, these are accounts that tell us that we're not saved by our life, but by His life. That's why they're so wonderful to read as historical truth. All right, now we pick up in verse 6 and 7. We find that Jesus has singled out a man. There's all sorts of people there, and yet here in sovereign grace and divine mercy, he has singled out a specific man. We know very little about this man. We know he's been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know how old he is, so we don't know how long he's been an invalid. We don't know how he became one. We just simply know that here is a man who has total inability, and here's a master who has compassion and mercy on this man. The man is unable, but the master is willing. And so now let's pick up actually reading in verse 8. Now that Jesus has come to this man, and Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and took up his bed, and walked. And this is where we think the end credits should roll. This is where everyone celebrates. This is where Jesus is honored and worshiped. And that's happened at some of the other healings and miracles that he's already performed in John's gospel. 
And yet now for the first time, there's a very different response to Jesus' mercy and his might and his wonder and his goodness. And we get a clue as to that response in the next phrase in John 5 verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. And here we understand that Jesus has intentionally performed this miracle on this man on this day so that he would push forward a point of conversation that has to happen. Who is Jesus? And why must he be worshipped, trusted, and believed? And so by performing this miracle at this time and at this place and on this day, he now receives a crowd of people who are furious and livid. And they are the Jewish religious leaders. We'll read about them more in the verses that follow and why they're so upset on the Sabbath. But I, I said it's an instructive miracle. Let me draw out a few things that are instructive already before we get to their alarming response. Here's a few principles that we see in this miracle that are consistent across the Bible. Here's the first one. Jesus seeks the man. The man actually doesn't seek Jesus. Now, I know that there are miracles that are taken from different vantage points, but we find a consistent theme. Even those who come to Jesus don't really come knowing who he is. They don't really come grasping all that makes him him. There's a verse in Romans 3.11, and the first time you read it, the first time I read it, I really struggled to accept that it was true. Here's what Romans 3 verse 11 says. No one seeks for God. Have you read that verse before? It's hard to accept. You think to yourself, well, surely some people do. Surely some people seek for God. But that's not what Romans 3.11 is saying. It's not saying no one ever has an interest in God as they perceive him. It's saying no one comes to God as he is, willing to take him for all that he is. That is why God must seek us. And God seeks us to reveal who he is. And here we see how this man will respond to God. And there's something that the man does that as a principle is alarming. When Jesus says to the man, do you want to be healed? The man's response is, well, no one can get me into the pool. In other words, the man's hope is still in something apart from Jesus, but he's willing to let Jesus help him or assist him get to that place. This is an important principle we see about salvation, and I hope you catch it. We might be okay with Jesus assisting us or partnering with us, but that is not the same as putting our faith in Jesus alone. It is perniciously easy to permit Jesus to assist you in your salvation rather than trusting in Jesus as your salvation. The man is willing to let Jesus help, but as we'll see, he's not willing to trust in Jesus. Once again, there's another principle here. So first, Jesus seeks. Second, Jesus saves alone. It's not he doesn't come to assist us in our salvation. But third, Jesus saves again by his authoritative word. The man thinks if you could get me somewhere, if you could help me, Jesus just speaks. Get up. Take up your bed and walk as he's done at other times. His word alone is sufficient to do all of the healing work. And yet, sadly, what we'll see in the verses that follow, the man doesn't really think that he needs Jesus. So join me now in verse 13. I want you to see how the man responds. Now the man who had been healed, 
did not know who it was, for Jesus had intentionally withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I'll pause there. All sorts of questions could come up at this point. What's the relationship between sin and physical suffering? And I had four pages of notes on that that I've eliminated for time's sake this morning. Here's, I think, an important bottom line in context. Jesus is speaking to this man in particular to help him realize that his need is beyond his physical healing. The man had a disability that he was aware of, but much more than that, he has depravity that he is unaware of. The man has a body that Jesus healed, but much more importantly, he has a soul that needs to be saved. Jesus is trying to get the man to realize what he has tried to help Nicodemus realize, the woman at the well realize, and the royal official realize, that their perception of their need is far too narrow. Their need is far greater than they realize. Not only did you need to be healed, you need to be saved. That's why he's telling the man, you need to turn from sin and trust in me. But notice how the man responds. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. The very Jews who are so angry that Jesus has killed him, healed him on the Sabbath. In other words, the man threw Jesus under the bus or to the wolves. If you know the Gospel of John well, you know that in John 9, Jesus will heal a man born blind. And again, the Pharisees, who are sort of the Sabbath police, will hop all over that and be very upset. But the man who was healed, who was born blind in John 9, defends Jesus, stands up for Jesus, says, no, Jesus is the one who healed me. All I know is I couldn't see, and now I can. I'm with him. This man's the exact opposite. Oh, you're after Jesus? Uh, Yeah, he's that guy. Let me now get out of here. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The man's response is sad. He puts the fear of man above faith in Christ. Why is it the Jewish religious leaders are so mad? I'll give you a little bit of background. The Sabbath, of course, is from the Bible, from the book of Genesis. God rested as a principle for us to practice on the Sabbath, and that was then codified in the law given through Moses in Exodus 20. But all the Bible actually says is to rest from our labors. And of course, the man picking up his mat and walking is not a breaking of the Sabbath as revealed in the Bible. But it is a breaking of the man-made rules that the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes had added to the Bible. They actually added 39 categories of what they defined as ways you could work. And among those 39 categories, one of their made-up rules was picking up an item and moving it from one domain to another. So the man's problem would have been that he picked up his bed. And yet, who decided that he needed to pick up his bed? the Lord Jesus who healed him. So thus, Jesus' healing has put at a point of conflict the man-made traditions of the Jewish religious leaders and the might and the authority of Jesus himself, the creator who has made the Sabbath and the creation week. So now verse 18, the Jews understanding this, understand that the issue is between Jesus as authority or them as authority. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, there are extra additions to it. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. A number of sociologists and cultural commentators that I've read have noticed a trend of anti-authoritarianism. So a concern with authority and the use of authority. And much of that is fair and and understandable because authority obviously is abused and can be used poorly. But if we're honest, the conversation about authority really isn't just an issue with authority as a concept. It's a clash of authorities. Whose authority will have authority? And that's the issue in verse 18. The question is not, um, does Jesus have the right to have authority? The question is, can Jesus have more authority than me? Or should I have more authority than him? Do I get to define what the Sabbath breaking is, or does he? Do I follow him, or does he really need to follow me? And so the rest of John 5 is now Jesus explaining and establishing his authority through his word. Today we'll look at verses 19 through 30. So if you have those in front of you, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the witnesses of Jesus' authority, 31 through 47. But I want to back up just a second and uh, pick up in verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Notice verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. I think Jesus gives four grounds for his authority. And if you have the bulletin, they're already written for you. If you're a note taker, here's number one. Here's the first ground of Jesus' good authority. Number one, Jesus, as God, shares God's purpose. So in verse 17, he says, my father is working and I am working. In the agrarian age, in the pre-industrial age, you would almost always pick up whatever profession your father had. Whatever his job was is what your job was. Jesus is saying God's job is my job. And here's why it's striking for him to say this on the Sabbath. In the first century, the rabbis were always arguing about ways that people could break the Sabbath, but they eventually had to admit there's one person who always really does work on the Sabbath, and that person is God, because he has to uphold the universe by the might of his power. All things continue to exist because God, even though he showed us the principle and pattern of resting, he himself does not rest. He never gets tired, and he is always working. And now Jesus says, and I am too. So the response is, wait, but, but only God is allowed to work on the Sabbath. Are you saying that your God? Ding, 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 you got it. So verse 18, what Jesus is indicating is exactly what they understand him to indicate, that he himself is equal with God. Here's what I think is most striking. Jesus never debates them over whether or not their added interpretations to the Sabbath are appropriate or not. You would think that might be where he goes. You guys have added things to the Bible that aren't really there. But instead, he wants them to know who he is. If he argues with them over interpretation and approach, it would be like they have equal footing. But instead, he's letting them know, actually, you and I are not on the same level. I'm actually equal with God. My role and responsibility is to do what God the Father does, and that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm healing people. 
Jesus does what the Father does. And yet he never acts independently from the Father. Look in verse 19. These are very carefully constructed words by Jesus to show that his equality with God is not separate from God. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus is not a separate God or a competing God, but is co-equal with God and yet willfully subordinate to God the Father. He is everything that God has promised in the Old Testament. Now at this point, you could be nodding along. It's, it's a Sunday morning and we're gathered at church and perhaps the majority of us would say, yes, Jesus is God. Jesus is God the Son. He has all authority. But remember in the context here, the question is not whether one believes that intellectually or whether or not one treats Jesus as if he really is God with all authority. So a good question for us who would affirm intellectually, yes, Jesus is God. A good question for us is when my desires are at contrary purposes with his desires, whose desires win? Whose desires have been winning lately? If, if I believe he is God and he is my authority and he has the right to direct me as his creation, am I joyfully submitting to him or do I find in my heart a stubborn resistance to the fact that he is the good authority over which my life stands? So number one, Jesus as God is fulfilling the same purposes as the Father. But now number two is in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Here's the second point Jesus is saying. The second ground of his authority is this. Jesus as God the Son receives God's, the Father's confiding love. He receives God, the Father's confiding love. If a father is training his son in his craft, he imparts to his son the tricks of the trade because he loves his son. The baker doesn't withhold the secret ingredients from his son. He loves him and wants him to succeed. The carpenter gives all the insight and skill so that his son will have the quality craftsmanship that he hopes. The farmer teaches his son the tips for an abundant yield. The father loves his son, and so, of course, he confides in the son all that he knows. Now, Jesus is again saying this to make it clear that there's a distinction between Jesus as God's unique son and everyone else. God the Father has a level of confidence and intimacy with God the Son that could not and, of course, would not be availed apart from Him. Now, again, this leads us to a point of application. We could nod in agreement. That's true. Jesus is God's Son. The Father loves Him. But then doesn't that also mean that if the Father has confided all things to the Son, may God help us humbly trust the Son when we don't understand May God help us believe and love the Son as the Father does. These miracles are a mercy to help people trust in the Son. 
All right, now number three is verse 21. Here's Jesus' third argument for why he has good authority that they need to follow. Verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Here's the third thing that makes Jesus unlike everyone else, makes him unique. Jesus, as God, gives life to whom he will. Now, life and death are used in the Gospel of John in two ways, and they're really used in the Bible in two ways. Of course, one way is physical life. We're alive because he holds all things together. We die when our life in this world is over. But of course, the Bible, and John especially, also talks about life as spiritual life, eternal life, life that has Christ. And it talks about the opposite, death, as death to God, coldness to God, coldness to others, and unresponsiveness to Jesus. Now, Jesus has power to give life. Did you know in the Bible when it talks about Jesus' resurrection, it ascribes it to all three persons of the Godhead? In 1 Corinthians 6, 14, it says, the Father raised the Son from the dead. In John 10, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down, and I will raise it up on my own accord. And Romans 8, 11 says the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. Why would it say all three? Because all three always perfectly work in harmony, sharing their purposes as God. Now, I think the fact that Jesus gives life is not what makes the Pharisees angry. It's the last part of verse 21. It's the fact that he gives life to whom he will. Didn't you see that in the miracle? There's all sorts of people there that are invalids, and Jesus has mercy on whom he will. And Jesus makes a sovereign, gracious, infinitely wise decision There are so many good questions we have when we come to the Bible that stretch our finitude as humans. But at some point, when we ask why high enough, we're left with this answer, because God, because God. And so when we think about what's right and what's fair in terms of who gets life and who doesn't, the real thing that we struggle with is not the fact that Jesus has authority, it's that his authority is higher than ours but he gives life to whom he will. And thus our response should be, thank you, Lord, that you bring anyone from death to life, from deadness and sin to life in Christ. Number four, here's the fourth argument Jesus gives to demonstrate that he is one worthy of worship for his unique authority. Number four, Jesus is the only savior and the ultimate judge. And now I'd like you to have your Bible open in John 5, verse 22, so we can see these scriptures, these words from our Lord that are so arresting in their clarity. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The Father has rightly given all authority to his Son, 
Jesus Christ. Now that phrase in verse 24, that final phrase, is one all of us should rejoice in, but all of us should consider, is this true of me? Have I passed from death to life? Now friend, here's the good news of the passage. We pass from death to life by simply believing in Jesus. Trusting in Him who has come and has conquered death and has given His life and brings us from our condemnation to the salvation that He alone provides. But the sobriety and urgency of that could not be overstated. So look in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, that hour is already happening in the Gospel of John. Indeed, in chapter 11, Jesus will call Lazarus to come forth out of the tomb. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him His authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And now verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Friend, everything hinges on Jesus. Our eternity, our hope, or our condemnation hinges on our willingness to receive Jesus. Jesus is saying that his judgment is just, and that lets us know something very important. Sin is not a social construct, and guilt is not a subjective feeling. There is a real right, and there is a real judge, and his name is Jesus. And we all stand accountable to him not to our own perception of what we think is right or wrong. Jesus is clearly and lovingly telling us He is the final authority, not our feelings or our cultural constructions. This means that what Jesus says is going to happen is a sober and real reality for everyone. Everyone will either be resurrected to eternal life or will be resurrected to judgment. The resurrection of life is a beautiful picture I love the way C.S. Lewis illustrates it in the final words of the last battle from the Chronicles of Narnia. Here's what he wrote. He who has spoke to them no longer looked like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it is only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at least, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The resurrection of life is one of eternal bliss that begins the great story that God has secured for us in Christ. But think for a moment of the alternative. The resurrection to judgment is for a judgment that is cemented the moment our life here is over. I've been reading this week a biography of Alexander Hamilton. And in the 
biography, in the opening pages, I was struck by this. Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr, as you know, when he, when he was 49 years old. But his widow went on to live for more than 50 years after them. And so she held a, a, a tour in her house. People would come to see all of Alexander's writings and books and all the things that made him such a famous and controversial American founder. And as people reflected back on the tours at their house, they noticed there was one part of the tour that was always longest for her. And that was when she would go through the room where there was a, a bust, a statue of Alexander, her deceased husband's head. And she would linger at that and look at him. And people overheard her at 97 years old speaking things to this statue of her deceased husband. Here's what she said. I am so tired. It is so long. I want to see him. But Hamilton was gone, never to return, and his eternity was as cemented as that statue. And Hebrews 9, 28 tells us this, it's appointed for a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And here in John 5, Jesus is graciously, soberly telling us that we must trust Christ now in this life. Because when the day comes where he calls us, it's either to life or judgment, and there are no second chances then. So here he's appealing to people to believe. Can I show you that in verse 29? I don't want you to be confused here. It says, those who have done good go to the resurrection of life. But what was the good thing they did? Did you see it earlier in verse 24? They hear my word and believe. The good then is not a deed of righteousness we have done, but a trust in the person and work of Christ. And the bad is a rejection in the person and work of Christ. In fact, all the things that Jesus is doing in John 5 are specific fulfillments of the Messiah. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 said the Messiah would be the judge, the Son of Man. Isaiah 35, 6, Jeremiah 31 said the Messiah would heal the lame and the sick. Deuteronomy 32, 39, 1 Samuel 2, 6, said the Messiah would bring the dead to life. All our lives and all our eternity hinge on Jesus and his authority, which is the thing that can cause us to resist him, is the only good authority there is. Here's Jesus Christ, King of kings, maker of universes, and the only crown he wears on earth is one of thorns. The power that he has, he empties himself of. He takes on the role of his servant, and he humbles himself even to the point of a crucifixion. Jesus' authority then is certainly not something we should fear or resist, but is the only good authority that exists. Thus, whoever thinks that he can preserve his life will lose it. Whatever who's willing to let go of our perception of preservation and trust Jesus who gave himself for our life, will live. So this morning, as we read the authority of Jesus, Jesus appeals to us to know who he is as God and to come to him for the salvation he has. Let's pray to him this morning towards that end. God, as a sinner, I find in myself a pride that persists where I at times want to resist the authority of Jesus and do what I wanted to do instead of what he wants to do. 
And sometimes, like the man in this miracle, I'm fine if Jesus wants to help me do what I wanted to do. But I'm less willing to let go and trust him, especially if that might mean there's conflict with other people. And yet in this passage we see, Lord, there is one supreme authority, and it is put squarely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and who will judge all humanity. We actually don't stand in judgment of Jesus. Jesus is in judgment over all of us. And yet rather than resisting the Lord Jesus or rejecting him or complaining about him, humble us to realize that he has come to save us and to give his life for us. His is an authority of unselfish nature, truly unique. And his is an authority that is for our good and for our healing in our life. So Father, I pray as Christians that maybe right now there's something you're pressing on our conscience, an area that we are out of step with God's authority. We are resisting you. We are going our own way. And we've maybe even cordoned off a section of our lives as off limits. Help us to give that back to Christ. Even in these moments, say, Father, forgive me. You're right. I'm wrong. Jesus has the right to every aspect of my heart and life. And I give this to you now. I submit this to my King. Lord, work that healing that we need in our lives. But perhaps someone else here has been questioning Jesus, like these religious leaders, questioning his goodness, questioning his authority, questioning his right and his justice. And at some point, we have to realize that's because I want to exert my authority over his. And so give them the miraculous power to just humbly trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.